Hello and welcome to Oh What A Time, the history podcast that tries to decide if the past was absolutely rubbish. I'm Tom Crane. I'm Chris Skull. And I'm Ellis James. Each week on this show we'll be looking at a new historical subject and today we're going to be discussing inventions. From the Paternoster lift to the virtual pet Tamagotchi to the player piano. I know two of those three things. I think I do anyway. Can't wait to learn more. And the one you don't know is the one you've researched and are talking about today, but still can't get your head around. It's going to be a very bad bit of podcasting. It's the kind of job, isn't it, that kids want to do. I want to be an inventor when I grow up. Have you ever yeah, met absolutely. an inventor? Uh, I ha- Well, this is quite cool. Uh, my friend's dad was part of the team that invented the, well... You know that thing that landed on Mars, yeah. the Mars landing? Yeah. That little robot that landed and then got its foot stuck and didn't really move properly? Yeah. <laughs> that one. But he was part of the team, one of the lead inventors on that. That's amazing. Yeah, that's quite cool. It made it there. It then got into problems, but it, it made <laughs> See, it there, which is, I, mean, I couldn't get something to he Mars. He was basically involved in NASA-sanctioned robot wars. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the two main inventors of our lifetime, I would say, Trevor Bayliss... And uh, yep. James Dyson, Clive Sinclair as well as the other one. I see. No, I'm not. I'm You're not having, having Sinclair. I'm not having a, a shit car. <laughs> a shit car. That would be terrifying to drive. Can you even call it a car? <laughs> Sinclair C5. When you see footage of it, you think you'd have to be a maniac to get in one of those on a main road. <laughs> it has to be a prank. Can you be classed as an inventor if your invention is just rubbish and impractical? He did invent other things, though. In fairness, I don't know why I'm being so um, supportive of Sir Clive Sinclair, yeah. but he, but he did have other things in his locker, I think. Oh, he was the ZX eighty one and the ZX Spectrum. Okay, so he invented those early computers that I I'm just about old enough to remember. Even when you had a Spectrum, you barely had a computer. Though, <laughs> yeah, you? yeah, that is true. It was on the it was on the outskirts of computers. In the same way that if you had a Sinclair C five, you barely had an electric vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> you might as well walk. Yeah. <laughs> Did you need a number? Did uh, Sinclair C5, would would you have to register that with the DVLA? Now, that is a good question. I'm not sure. I've just, I just remember the, the footage of him, I think, on Tomorrow's World or something like that, sort of yeah. driving it around a busy roundabout, and there are lorries. <laughs> beep, beep. <laughs> <laughs> just think, there's no, hang on, there's no number plates on a Sinclair C5. Oh, Okay. <laughs> So that, that'll probably be because it can only achieve a top speed of insert number, which is okay <laughs> under the DVLA. It probably will be that. Yeah. That it can't, it'll be the same way you don't have to register an electronic scooter or any of these sort of things. So they can't do the speed that's required to be a, a vehicle, a roadworthy vehicle. I'm afraid like now I'm going to have to look up <laughs> the, top the top speed of a Sinclair C5, <laughs> an electrically assisted pedal cycle. Yeah, because I was about to say that. Wasn't there an element of it where you pedaled? Yeah. They were made in Wales, made in Merthyr. It's also, it's not, that's not a sexy sentence, is it? I'm now going to get in my electrically, electrically assistant pedal. Was it, was it electrically assisted pedal cycle? <laughs> that's not, that is not a cool term for what you're Although driving. Although widely described as an electric car, Sinclair characterised it as a vehicle, not a car. I love <laughs> In the same way the Flintstones car was a vehicle, not technically a car. That's amazing. I, I actually, I do have, uh, I've had an invention that I've had knocking around for a while in my head. Oh, yeah. Great. If you'd like to know what it is, which is, 
I have a problem with my flies. When I go out and about, my flies are often down, and I don't realise it. So I'll go to the loo. That's a choice, and I'll sort Tom. Of, I'll, don't I'll walk around town, <laughs> and then I'll realise, oh, no, my flies are down again. I can't believe it. I forgot to zip them up again. Yeah. Now, my idea is it's a little thing that clips onto the base of your fly, and it can tell when the flies are down, and it does a little beep. A nice, subtle, dignified beep, and I go, oh, there we are, little zip, there we go, into the meeting, yeah. the job's yours. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for coming in. You now run... Apple. <laughs> I think the scenario you've just posited really reveals that you've you've put chosen this as the reason why these jobs are not coming off. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It must be. The, we've looked into it, and it's the flies. Well, I've always noticed, Chris. Whenever I miss out on a job, it's always to someone who's got his flies done. <laughs> so there must be some kind of correlation. I'm not a mathematician. If you drew a graph that gives you the result, that's why. <laughs> Anyway, should we do a bit of correspondence? Yeah, let's do it. What you got? Right. Okay. We've had an email from none other than Leigh Saunders. Thank you, Leigh, for getting in contact. Um, On the subject of medieval jobs, it would be definitely a bit of a skive. Uh, Ellis, do you want to explain what this was? Because it's something you mentioned. Well, I'm so glad that I'm able to make a living from podcasts (laughs) and the radio and occasional live performances. I just don't think I'm suited to anything else. And even when I talk to relatives of mine who've done sort of manual work or physical work, I think, my God, I'd last five seconds doing that. So then you extrapolate from that and you think, okay, well, how would I have coped 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 1,000 years ago? And I just assume that I would be dead at 13. That's, that's, just, that's just how I imagine it working out. So I've always been, we've been interested in jobs from the past that are a bit of a sky. Exactly. I would also die. I'd die at 14 and I'd be found with my flies down as well, <laughs> as a final indignity. <laughs> They'd assume you were some sort of court jester, a dirty court jester. <laughs> so, this guy's brilliant. He's got one gag, but this gag. <laughs> Wait till you see. You, know, you won't see it coming. It's the same joke, but it's always hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> so, Leia's got in contact to say hello, team. Great podcast you guys are producing. Ah, oh, thank you. Your question in today's new correspondence episode about a job from the medieval period, which actually be not too much hard work compared to the hard labour of others, set my mind straight to one thing and one thing only. A food taster. Oh. This being the person who was employed to taste the food of the kings and queens or other important people to check if it was safe for them. It would, sec- it would secure employment with the most loved elites of society of the period – um, and waiting for meal times and tasting food off a plate and giving your employer a thumbs up, unless you were suddenly dead, of course, um, wouldn't be that bad. The one caveat to this, caveat, sorry, to this would be you'd have to be all over the medieval opinion polls and subscribing to whatever the medieval equivalent of push notifications were to keep up with gentry po- popularity. So perhaps a messenger knocking on your door delivering an update on rich people and how they're doing in the opinion league tables because you wouldn't want to risk the food tasting of an unpopular person. So that's the thing. You need to be across... Who is liked and who isn't liked. His main point is that actually day to day, if you're with someone who's much liked, being a food taster is not that bad a job. 
is a question that I've always wanted to ask about food tasters, medieval food tasters. Yeah. Surely if the food is poisoned, it's not going to be instant. It's not like cyanide, is it, back then? It's going to be something that just rots your guts over like 48 hours, isn't it? So surely there's not enough time for a food taster to really evaluate the le- how lethal a main course is. I was with an Australian comedian once, and we were all eating oysters. And she went, oh, that's a bad oyster. The oysters are bad. Everyone avoid the oysters. So maybe you can just tell, and you'd have a little, you'd have a little bite of poison food, and you'd say, "Right, I'm probably going to be very ill, but not die. No one else, no one else touch it. I'm going to have a really tough ten days. Yeah. Everyone else, go and get a KFC." Can, can I suggest something quite awful? Just get a dog <laughs> <laughs> and have it under the table with you, and then wait ten minutes. <laughs> Tom, you'd be of, Tom, you'd be of such value in the court of a king because you're a great jester. The fly stuff's incredible. And also, you're, tra- you're chipping in with ideas. Yes, you're a problem solver with your flies down. <laughs> this guy, he's an absolute joker. But when the chips are down, yeah. boy, is he? <laughs> he comes with great he comes ideas. With, he comes up with great ideas, and he's always got his knob out. It's absolutely fantastic. Great for morale. When the chips are down, also incidentally, don't eat the chips. <laughs> The dog is dead. <laughs> You're wasted well, here. Thank you, Leigh, for getting in contact with that. Um, we love all the stuff you send us. So should we quickly remind people of the, the format points they can hit us with? One Day Time Machine, the greatest format point in current podcasting. You go back for a day, any point in time, what are you doing with your day? What are the other things we want people to email about? Medieval scives. I'm absolutely fascinated by them. Or even scives at any point in history. Jobs that definitely would have been <laughs> quite easy. Yeah. Also, what would you do when you, if you went back to 500 AD to convince someone of a fact that is demonstrably true? And Brilliant. have you got any good historical relatives? Here's how you can get in touch with the show. All right, you horrible lot. Here's how you can stay in touch with the show. You can email us at hello at ohwhatatime.com and... You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Oh What A Time Pod. Now, clear off. So this week, as we said in the introduction, we are discussing inventions that change the world. And I'm going to be chatting about the player piano. Now, live music or any live performance has historically been very expensive and therefore, to some extent, exclusive. But... In the years before the advent of mass-recorded sound, something that I think we'd probably find quite hard to imagine, almost the only way to hear good music played to any sort of professional standard was to go to a concert, which meant relatively limited choice. And also it meant you needed to live in certain places. Um, Can you imagine that, though, not being able to listen to songs you liked unless you actually went to a gig? Yeah. I, I actually think that's one of the best things about modern life. It's like, yeah, if you think yeah, of a song, oh, I hear this song, I can just go hear it. If you, if you, back in 1600s, you've got to go get a little fella with a stringed instrument. Yeah. He's got to know it. You're like, uh, oh, oh, I love this composer. Oh, what are they on? Oh, there's a concert uh, at a venue 400 miles away in nine months. <laughs> <laughs> Which I can't afford to go to. <laughs> Go, go for the weekend. <laughs> Treat yourself. How? Also, if you go to a concert and you're like, wow, that's an absolute banger. Well, you're probably never going to hear it again in your life. <laughs> yeah. 
Enjoy <laughs> the memory. You, well, you're, <laughs> your one option in the home is to, is to sing the song yourself, isn't it? So if you go, I want to listen to Greensleeves, you can just stand in your front room and sing Greensleeves and listen to it. As it's listen to it live, it's not yeah. as satisfying. <laughs> but that is literally what people's sort of relationship with music would have been. Because most people wouldn't have been able to afford it, but also in any way. You know, people playing pianos in pubs was a really big thing for a very long time. Yeah. And people really respected yes. the person in, you know, your community who was a good musician. Because if you'd if you'd gone to the trouble of learning songs, I think more people probably were self-taught musicians as well, because it was the only way of creating music. Music's such an enormous part of all societies. Now, various inventors had tried to resolve this problem by creating machines that either reproduced sound or played music for themselves, and in so doing, changed the world by making music available to anyone at any time. Various contraptions emerged, self-playing violins. Can you imagine that? And mechanical organs, for instance. But the most successful were the player pianos. Enter the American Edwin Scott Voti. He was born in New York in 1856. Uh, Voti entered business first as a clerk, then as a salesman for an organ company in 1873, when he was about 17 years old. Now, Thomas Edison... That's quite a hard job, isn't it? What? I mean, selling organs. I mean, I, I imagine it must have been to churches, not door to door. Not locking a sort of like a... <laughs> Do you think he's just going down the street, knocking on doors, and then he gets to a church, and he's like, yes. <laughs> and he goes in, and there's a huge, dusty space where there was previously an organ. Yeah, and a, and a, and a very sad congregation who love music. <laughs> They've just donated loads of money. An organ salesman. Now, Thomas Edison invented his phonograph in the late 1880s, providing one form of recorded and replayable sound. So Volti began to think about the applications and prospects for the instruments he was selling to his customers. The result in 1895 was the player piano. Now, that's the other thing with having recorded music at our fingertips, is if you love a song, you can just play it again and again and again. Yeah, that's really interesting. I suppose you could make requests if someone was playing something in a pub. But if, if a song is... I'm, I think I'm quite weird about this. I'm, uh, if there's a song I like and really love it, I will listen to it 30 times on the trot. Absolutely, definitely. Especially if I'm travelling somewhere, if I'm commuting somewhere with my headphones on and it's my little secret that I've just listened to Taylor Swift. Yeah, no, your secret around. is that your flies are down and everyone can see a penis down. <laughs> now, with the player piano, using specially punched rolls not dissimilar to the punched cards used in early computing, the piano read a series of instructions and played pieces of music on its own. The mechanism was pneumatic and driven by bellows operated by a human player who was also responsible for the tempo or speed of the piece being reproduced. Eventually, electric models were introduced. Now, to truly transform the market and to compete with the phonograph and the gramophone, player piano manufacturers needed one more innovation. This is crucial as well. An instrument that could reproduce the tempo and other phrasing input by the original performer. Now, this innovation was to be credited to the German uh, Edwin Welt. He launched his reproducing piano in 1904 though its heyday was to be in the 20s. Now it was possible for composers and famous pianists so the Australian Percy Granger for instance, the American George Gershwin or the Russian Sergei Rachmaninoff and Sergei uh, Prokofiev for instance. It was, it was possible to have their singular style of performance reproduced anywhere that such a piano was installed. Exactly the point no made way. in the marketing. Now, I am terrible for what I'm about to say, okay? When I get a new piece of technology, <laughs> and that could be the DVD player or the first smartphone I owned or the first computer I owned, 
I will always, I, I've had to really talk myself out to this in quite recent years. I will always think, right, that is as good as this is going to get. <laughs> this technology has ended here. We're done. That's that TikTok. That, this, this is, it's 2002 and computers are not going to get better than this. I remember the first time I, I saw someone's iPhone, I was like, well, they've done it, haven't they? Yeah. The perfect phone. The scientists can focus on something else now, because that's, <laughs> that's all. I reckon, I reckon if I'd seen a player piano in yeah. the 20s that was, that was able to really accurately reproduce, say, the playing style of George Gershwin mm. in... 1920 or, or whenever, or 1904, which is when it was first introduced, I would have sat back and I would have gone, this is where music ends. I couldn't agree more. I remember when I first got a Game Boy for Christmas, yeah. thinking, this is literally what it would look like if an Italian plumber went on an adventure. This is... if this is, <laughs> <laughs> It couldn't more accurately reflect <laughs> that journey. You know, it's done. This is what... When it, in terms of modern inventions, this is the thought that I always come back to as to why we haven't invented everything. The thing that still blows my mind about living in 2023, if my arm gets chopped off, that's it. I don't have an arm anymore. Yeah, It's mad to me that I could lose my arm. And that, 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 can't we, why can't we grow a new one? That will happen. How, yeah. That will definitely happen. But that's, that's, that's the thing I hold up. As well, we can't have invented everything yet. But we are in a situation where you can have a you know incredibly advanced robotic whatever this or um, an arm replacement basically. So we, we are at that point of kind of invention, well, like, aren't we? Heart transplants. Mm. Yeah, that's, can you imagine I'm, telling someone from before the first heart transplant? Oh yeah, yeah. If your heart if your heart gives up, we'll just give you someone else's what a dead person's <laughs> heart. <laughs> are you mad? <laughs> in, in a way, I reckon if you went back to. 1800 and you told people about how heart transplants but that we don't uh, we can't make you a new arm if you lose your arm i think they would be they'd be like why is that why have we got it that way around yeah. how have we solved the heart thing before like the arm thing what i would want is if i lost an arm in some sort of awful accident i would want then as a replacement arm arnold schwarzenegger's arm <laughs> <laughs> huge muscly arm <laughs> well, you also, did. you wouldn't be able to play piano anymore, so you'd want to play a piano as well. That's what you'd want. That would be the yep, perfect yep. time to get your player piano. Now, the thing with the performances um, being able to replicate, say, you know, Gershwin or um, uh, Percy Granger, that also meant that performances could be reproduced long after the player's death. Wow. So the Venezuelan pianist, Teresa Carreno, for instance, who died in 1917, or the German pianist, Bernhard Stavenhagen, who died in 1916... They were being broadcast on BBC Radio via a reproducing piano installed in a studio in Manchester in 1923. That is incredible. Yeah. That is genuinely incredible. With all the rhythm and all the, the feeling and touch, yeah. they would have... Now, That's the Norwegian composer uh, Edvard Grieg was still providing concerts in 1937, some 30 years after his death, and influencing interpretations of his music thereby. Even today, disc and electronic recordings have been made based on the performances captured by the reproducing piano, either a grand or an upright. Now, the how of capturing the performance was quite simple. A player was invited to the factory and asked to play a piece on a specially adapted piano. So each key was rigged up to a pencil, which marked wherever it was played and for how long onto a blank paper scroll, a blank version of the punched ones sold to consumers. There were also pencils recording pedal use and tempo. 
purchase scrolls would be marked with a temple marking reflecting a metronomic beat. And this is the setting the home consumer would use for reproduction. So oh. similar, I suppose, to the distinction between a 33 and a third or a 45 RPM setting so for, set a, the, the, for a record. So you set the speed as you're playing it back in your, in your home or whatever it happens to be. Yeah, you have based, all the information you on, need. Based on the original player, yeah. So if this sounds eerily familiar then it's not all that different from the use of computer generated avatars to stand in for artists you know modern in in modern times either after their death or long after they've ceased to look like their younger selves thanks to the processes of aging so music went first to where other forms of entertainment have since followed now if you've ever wondered as aficionados did in the 1920s and to borrow a wording from an advert which actually appeared in National Geographic in 1922, opposite one for uh, Smith & Wesson. How long does Paderewski hold his D? The answer came in the form of a piano reproducing his playing style. And the best bit, you can have him play his D for you over and over again. Now, the player wow. piano, or the reproducing piano, has survived to the present day, although the golden age of the instrument was in the 1920s. You see it in westerns and things. Yes, yeah. yes. Now, uh, these days, famous recording artists hardly rush to provide performance capture, preferring instead to prioritise the more prestigious album. But that doesn't, it doesn't really matter, because the computer's able to provide a suitable alternative. In fact, there's a direct link between how composers now write music, often for film, so if you think of people like Hans Zimmer, and the reproducing piano, the only different these the only difference these days is that a computer captures the input rather than a paper scroll, turning that input into sheet music rather than a series of pencil marks to be deciphered by the mechanics of it. So modern cinema would be really, really different without the player piano. Now I watched videos of player pianos when I was preparing for this uh, for, for this week's episode. And whilst they're incredible, you have to admit, it's really creepy. Because <laughs> the keys are going down, aren't they, as well? Yeah, the- it just looks like it's <laughs> being played by a ghost. That is exactly what it looks like. And yeah. I reckon if you were a little kid and you, you hadn't seen them in films, you didn't know what they were, you could really terrify a child with the play of piano. <laughs> you could scar that child for life quite it easily. It looks horrific. I think if I was playing it in my home, I'd, do, I'd, I'd lower that little hood over the keys so I'm not seeing the keys going up and down. Because that's the bit that freaks me out. I don't need that. I'll yeah. just listen to the music. I don't need the ghost keys going up and down. Yeah. Do you like music, Tom? Love it. Yeah. <laughs> do you like ghosts, Tom? Oh, I'm not so sure about them. Well, what about if a ghost plays you songs you like? Um, oh, okay. <laughs> do you know it's a, it, this is amazing, like, the ability, ability to, like, recreate to hear an artist playing the piano again. And it reminded me of um, this episode of Tomorrow's World I saw about a Japanese hotel. And I remember vividly seeing this and going, thinking, wow, this is the future. And in this hotel, you could go up to your room and you could choose a film from, like, a library of different films. And there would be a big robotic kind of video catalogue library deep in the depths of this hotel. You would punch in what number you wanted, it would charge you to your room, and this mechanical arm would go down, select the video, and put it into your video player, and you would sit there and watch wow. it. And on tomorrow's I was like, this is the future. So a clunky version of Netflix, I yeah. suppose. Yeah, super clunky yeah. physical version of Netflix. That's absolutely incredible. It's funny this, isn't it? Because when you try to, like, future gaze, you just take what you know right now and, and try and imagine that that's how you will be served entertainment in the future. So with the piano, when the player piano came out, it's like, well, this is how you'll hear piano. It'll just be plugged into the piano. But the reality is you end up with Spotify or the ability to just listen to media anywhere. I was a huge early backer of the mini disc. <laughs> I was completely convinced 
despite the fact that I had one and it kept saying Toc Reading and it never played the music I was trying to yeah. make it play, I still thought this is this is it. This is the thing. As you say, to tick off that thing, this is it. This is the final yeah, invention. Exactly. This is it. But you say it's hard to future-proof. You say it's hard to sort of predict what will be coming trends-wise. The very people who had millions and billions of pounds behind them to predict those things, the example I'm giving here is Blockbuster, and even they couldn't do it. So Blockbuster Video, which was at one point <laughs> the biggest thing, basically. Yeah. You know, in every city, there were 25 of these things. Yeah. And now it doesn't exist. Because yeah, yeah, they yeah. failed it's to recognise. It? It's terrifying. So you being 14 and living in in mid Wales unable to predict what the next sort of technological yeah. leap will be in music is slightly understandable but this huge multinational which had impossible amounts of money and the ability to research and predict etc etc yeah. could not see that seismic change well I I was doing I did like Tom I was a circuit stander for years and I once walked to a gig in King's Lynn this is probably in about 2016 or something and for the first time in ages, years, I saw a blockbuster video in town <laughs> that was full of people. <laughs> so I was like, wow, you could, you've good night, sweetheart, back yeah. to 2002. <laughs> but, it, but every other every other blockbuster in Britain had closed down by this point, apart from the one in Kings Lynn that was doing a roaring trade. So I thought, well... I've, I have got my opening five minutes guaranteed. Here we go. So I walked on, walked on stage, pleased as punch, thinking this is going to be incredible. When that, when I hammer blockbuster video, <laughs> <laughs> no one laughed, and the bloke said, "Stop it." Every comic we get every week talks about that fucking blockbuster video. We know we've got one and no one else does. It's fine. Move on. Yeah. If only Tom, if only you'd been the court jester at Blockbuster Video yeah. HQ. Gonna be cracking gags, flies down, they're going, by the way, guys. All right, I'm going to talk to you about a late 90s craze. All right, so we get in our time machine. We go back to the 90s. LSU emerged from the time machine. People immediately saying that guy does not belong here in the 90s. He's sticking out like a sore thumb. <laughs> he couldn't possibly get away with it. Doesn't make any sense. He knows too much. Um, children in the 90s uh, enjoyed a series of imported crazes, all of which were massive and then just died off just as quickly as they emerged. Do you remember the yo-yo? The yo-yo came back and was huge for a bit. That's a weird question. Do you, do you remember the yo-yo? <laughs> <laughs> but it went massive. It was no, massive. It, it had a kind of, it, it had a resurgence, a renaissance. And the thing yeah. with the yo-yo, during the 90s yo-yo renaissance, people of my parents' generation were so smug <laughs> They were like, oh, yeah, it'll all come back. These people will be playing with a, a stick and a hoop in the, in a couple of months. So I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, you did this first. Very yeah, good. Fine. By the way, can I just tell you one thing? Tell me if this is a correct decision. I was walking down the road with my five-year-old yesterday, and on the wall in one of our neighbours' houses was a Diablo. Yeah, yeah, Diablos? yeah. Which is the thing you'd spin with two sticks and flick yeah, it in the air. Idiots have them at music festivals. <laughs> 
Right. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, I was one of those idiots. Diablos. Yeah, I had one as a teenager and I was really good. And I could do the one where you, Did you? flip it over. You put your, your stick through the eye of the needle, as it were. That's what we called it in the In, in the, the Diablo, Diablo community. Um, <laughs> in the community, yeah. <laughs> With my fellow Diablos. They got banned from my school because one of them hit Mr. Man on his head. Mr. Man was a sports teacher. And then there was a Diablo ban, and I was gutted. Because that's what got me through break times. Did we play Pogs? Remember Pogs, the little cardboard discs? I was a little bit too old for Pogs. But I remember yeah, them. Pogs. They came yeah, in, they came them. right to the end. And then there's also, um, I had a Nokia 3210. Do you remember Snake? Snake was a big thing. Yes, that I'm, I'm part of Generation Snake. If you ever managed to do the thing where the snake filled the entire screen. I never did it. I got close. I got close a couple of times. There's no greater rush. I asked a friend of mine who was at university. I said, are you enjoying your uh, degree? He said, I'm playing a lot of Snake. <laughs> That's a bad sign. <laughs> Well, that guy now owns Google. He's a trillionaire. <laughs> there was also Windows 95 emerged, and everyone was playing Solitaire and Minesweeper. But, of course, the big one was the Tamagotchi. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. November 1996 it came out. I had a Tamagotchi. Yeah. Did you guys have a Tamagotchi? No, I was yeah. 15, almost 16 by the time they came out, so... It felt like I think my little sister had one. I think it was. It felt like something slightly younger kids had. I didn't have yeah. a Tamagotchi. Yeah, I was I was a similar age, but I also had a Diablo. So to answer your question, <laughs> yes, I had a Tamagotchi. <laughs> so, I did have one. If you don't know what a Tamagotchi is, it's a little digital virtual pet. It had a little plastic casing, little tiny digital kind of a um, little screen, few buttons, a keychain, usually brightly coloured plastic. It was the brainchild of Japanese inventors, the businessman Akiro Yukai and Bandai employee Aki Maita. Uh, they wanted to come up with a pet that was easy to look after and hence Tamagotchi was born. It was sold by Bandai, which is interesting. They're the same company that came up with Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Oh, so they wow. Were, they were raking in the they cash in the mid-90s. Yeah. And so it hit British Isles, May 1997, and it just went mad. It sold out everywhere almost instantly. And I bought one. So I was... In 97, I was 14, and I got a Tamagotchi. And I got uh, what was then a new generation of Tamagotchis that uh, you could fight... Do you remember this? What? I don't remember. Against other Tamagotchis. I remember you had to you had to feed them and you had to do all the stuff you would with a normal pet, but obviously on screen. But you had to remember to do it. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Maybe I should explain the things you need to do. You would get your Tamagotchi. It would hatch from a virtual egg. You would yeah. need to feed it. You would need to toilet train it, groom it, entertain it, put it to bed, give it medicine when it's ill, yes. and the, 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 you'd have to give it different levels of care and attention depending on how old it was. Interestingly, and all of this, Chris, it was on a tiny LCD screen. Yeah, tiny as well, LCD little screen. Like, yeah. Your average lifespan of a Tamagotchi... This is interesting, this, because I swear Tamagotchis were older, but the average age was about... Average lifespan is 12 days, seven generally the kind of shortest, 25 that's the longest. It's a, a bit bleak, isn't it? Yeah, so I thought, I'm not sure... I mean, I make it longer than that. If, <laughs> yeah, and, and, and they say that Britain is a nation of pet lovers. <laughs> <laughs> How long should we let it live for? 12 days will be fine. 12 what, days? What about 14? What? What about making it a make it a fortnight? No, not quite a fortnight. <laughs> oh my 12 god! Twelve before. Yeah. So the average life is twelve days. The world record age for a nineteen ninety six Tamagotchi. You have a guess. Nine months. 
89 days. Wow. 89, but it must have been some pain at the end. There were definitely <laughs> parents who said, oh, you want a dog, do you? We'll get you a Tamagotchi and see how you get on with that. And if you can look after a Tamagotchi, we might consider getting a dog. That was definitely... And came in and go, it's dead after 12 days. I told you, this is why we didn't get you a dog. Yeah. You can't look after a Tamagotchi for, for two weeks. Yeah, but the difference what? is, if, if you kill a dog, we're going to end up in prison. <laughs> Genuine question, though. What do you think the thought process was behind 12 days? What's happened there? I guess it speaks to the short attention span of kids, maybe. Also, I, I didn't have one, but I vividly remember the Tamagotchi. I mean, it was a, it was a news story. It was a, f- a cultural phenomenon. Yeah, but everyone no, had what, them. Were they very labour-intensive to look after? No. I so mean, you, were, you, you weren't like sort of but this, up, up in the middle is, of the night, like with a sort of like a, like with an ill child with croup. You have to take it for a six mile walk every day around the park at six a.m. <laughs> but I, I would, I they weren't banned in our school because I had mine in in school, and I think this is a, like ninety seven. This is before you've got mobile phones and smartphones, so you've got you've got a lot of attention and not a lot of places to put it if you don't want to pay attention to whatever lesson you're in. So I would sit there like checking on my Tamagotchi. It was a little... Like, again, you know, the same way they say that when you get a text message or you check your phone, it releases uh, like a few endorphins. There's like a chemical reaction. Yeah. I think it was that Tamagotchi was a really early version of that. We're c- um, coupled with uh, personal responsibility. Yes. In the same way, that what's, what's so frustrating about a smartphone is that a lot of the time, the, I would say the majority of the time I spend on my smartphone is wasted time but also I do need it for my calendar, for Izzy's calendar, my emails, yeah. and stuff stuff that actually is relevant. So that, but then you get sucked into the sort of the less relevant stuff. But with the Tamagotchi, obviously, if you don't look after this thing, it will die. And what happened then? When it died, could you reset it and start again? Yeah, that's basically what you do, yeah. It's a little re- I'm sure there was a little reset, but that's from memory. I'm sure there's a little reset. God, you know, a, little, a little message came on the screen when it died and said, this is your fault. That's what it said. <laughs> really? In, in capital no. letters. <laughs> you did this. <laughs> Cheers. It would, print, it, it would print out a little death certificate. Yeah. It actually time. said, satisfied. <laughs> satisfied. <laughs> did, your, did you give a name to your Tamagotchi? Yes, did you I have did. A name? Right. So, so I remembered my name, the name of my Tamagotchi last night. Now, you have to understand, this is like 1997, and I just really got into hip-hop. So I called my Tamagotchi Tupac 2. Yeah. Tupac the second. Yeah. Because it was a fighting Tamagotchi, and I'd learned that Tupac had thug life written across his stomach in a tattoo. Nice. So I called my, my Tamagotchi Tupac 2. I'm, and it was a fighting one, and it was like a champion. I had this champion Tamagotchi. I think that they must have introduced the fighting models for boys because it was huge in my school. All the boys. Who was it fighting? You just you, you link them together. They would have like little connections on the on the tops of the Tamagotchis. You'd press them together and go like battle. And then you would watch your two screens as you would fire little kind of like Hadoukens on Street Fighter 2. Yeah. You'd kind of like just throw fire at each other and then one would win. So could you, use, you get beaten up? Slightly unfortunate considering what happened to Tupac. <laughs> But this is Tupac 2, you see. He was writing a new history for himself. <laughs> oh, okay, fine. So were, were you in control of, of the battle? No. 
You could feed them, and you could. I think you might be able to train them. There's some element where you could basically, if your if your Tamagotchi was genetically good and you kept it in good condition, it had a better chance of winning its fights. Wow! Wow! Okay. And two pack two was on a roll in my school, just un- unbeatable. Yeah. That's incredible. But of course, what would happen on these on the battles if you fought that with the ultimate fate of two pack two? Mm. We would fight. I'd had so many fights that ultimately he he lost one, and that was it. Curtains. Yeah, and, and that was true also of the other range of Tamagotchis. If you didn't fail to act, you didn't feed them or groom them or entertain them, put them to bed in time over a sufficient period of time, that animal would die. Your Tamagotchi oh would pop God. it if you didn't look after. Well, I remember Chris actually on that. There was a point where I lost my Tamagotchi, so I knew it was somewhere in the house dying, suffering, <laughs> <laughs> which is quite bleak. Somewhere in the house, my pet was just just dying. And and I, oh I wasn't I like covered in feces. I was supposed to sort that out. I was supposed, I, oh, you know, I'm... all these sort of things you're supposed to do. Oh, yeah. how depressing! I just remembered as well. If you ta- your Tamagotchi would do a little poo, and you'd see little flies buzzing around it, and if you didn't clean the poo, that's how it would get sick. I'm sure. I'm sure that was one thing that I've just remembered now. In it's it's odd, isn't it? Because there are so many parallels with modern smartphone addictions. Yeah. With the ta- you know with with the Tamagotchi and and the way kids entertain themselves now, but there is an element of personal responsibility to the Tamagotchi that I actually quite like. Absolutely, yeah, it's a good way. You know how they give like kids babies like they cry to kind of yeah. get them used to responsibility. And also, you know, you get. I remember my sister had, um, you know, a, a doll that weed and she had to change its nappy and stuff and there's actually there's something quite interesting I there's something quite positive about that having to look after something if, especially a family that doesn't have pets it's just the fact that Tom's just died in, <laughs> under the sofa I didn't even bury it never found it again so in Japan various innovations popped up around Tomag- Tamagotchis such as Tamagotchi creches where units what? could be left in the care of others if your parents were busy special bereavement hotlines where people could get counseling and grieve over the loss of their virtual pet no there will always be grifters looking to make money <laughs> as night turns to day and day turns to night I'm going to talk to you about the Paternoster lift and how this invention changed the world. So, should we start by talking about how we are with lifts? How are you guys? Do you are you freaked out by them? Are you okay with lifts? S- still a childlike thrill. Um, oh, really? Okay. I love a lift. The higher the better. Absolutely love it. I went up to the eleventh floor last night and I was like, "This is living." <laughs> <laughs> Where were you? I was in a hotel in Cardiff, and I got to the eleventh floor, and I thought, "I've made it." Were you staying on the eleventh floor? Or on you the just 11th thought, gonna... floor, baby. <laughs> oh, you were okay. You, you weren't on the second floor, and you thought, "I'm just going to enjoy the lift." No, no, no. I wasn't exploring. Okay. <laughs> My dad was so scared of lifts that he would never go on them. So, as a family, the family would get in a lift if we we're in a hotel, and we would go up to whatever floor, and then we just have to wait for him to walk up the staircase. Wow. Yeah, he was so scared of them. He refused to go in them. Have you ever been stuck in a lift? No, have you? No. No. Oh, okay. But I have got a weird thing where I've been in lifts me plus one other really famous person a few times in my life. 
Adam Sandler. Wow. David Schwimmer. Wow. Gordon Brown. Wow. So, that might be it. And did you say anything in any of those situations? Nope. I just went, oh, oh. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's what I did when I got in a lift with Nigel Farage once. Huh? Oh. And I did exactly the same thing with Carl Froch. Yeah. They're my two lift people who I've been in lifts with. Oh. So, um, I'm going to start by taking you back, okay, uh, before I talk about this Paternoster lift and how it changed everything. So, the modern elevator can trace its roots back to Louis XV Versailles Palace in 1743. So, that's too early. That's too early for a lift. That's too early. Don't like it. It's amazing. His lift was called the Flying Chair, and it required. (laughs) I think I think I see what's happened here. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, he'd also invented the flying chair. That's the other thing, which I'm surprised to take (laughs) off. Um, So it required the user to pull on a rope to raise himself up or down. Uh, Would you like to guess why he had this installed in the Versailles Palace? Was he a big lad? He was well. He was a big lad, but that's not the reason. Well, it's kind of on the outskirts of the reason. Um, he had it installed so he could visit his mistress's apartment, which is on the floor above his, without having to use the stairs. So he was quite a lazy guy, and also didn't really want to be seen <laughs> so going around the palace. <laughs> How's that li- less lazy than the stairs? Well, if you're doing I don't it know, with it must hand been... power. Well, it had counterweights, so maybe it was quite a smooth action. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. It does make me think, though, how sexy is that? Will that be you appearing slowly, like sort of the love lift on Take Me Out into someone's bedroom, possibly naked? Which is the next question. Are you arriving naked when you go up to see your lover? (laughs) Sat there on the chair going, I'm ready. Um, I think tiny pair of pants. Yeah. In In case she's not alone. Yeah, not quite naked. But yeah, exactly. certainly not fully closed. But Absolutely. how is it? So you said that's working. Someone's pulling a rope, basically. You'd sit in it. It was like a little cabinet, basically. You pull yeah. a rope, and then you would slide up to your your lover's. Oh, room. you pull it yourself. You okay. pull it yourself. That's the thing. It's quite hard work, isn't it? I still think that sounds like more work than yeah. walking up the stairs. It's like your arms are doing the work. Aren't yeah. They? I also imagine that it was. Uh, I imagine it was quite squeaky, so other people would have heard. <laughs> so I'd be thinking about. <laughs> I'd probably, yeah. let's say you finished quite quickly. You don't want to go down, squeaking your way back to your bedroom and everyone going, well, that's been three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I'd probably go, after I'd finished, I'd say, should we chat for a bit? And then I think I'll probably yeah, yeah. your way down in about ten minutes. <laughs> yeah. Should we chat and maybe a three-course meal? <laughs> <laughs> Do you fancy a curry? So, that was the first lift but it wasn't until the mid-19th century that lifts really started to gain momentum because this was the time when buildings started to get taller and taller and most notably the E.V. Hogwalt building in Manhattan uh, Howwalt sorry which opened in 1857 it was five stories tall and it was there that they set up the first ever passenger elevator it was installed by a guy called Alicia Otis now the reason this was put in wasn't because uh, it was hard to get up those five stairs. It was because there was a shop in there and the guy wanted to draw people to his shop. It was called Howalt's Fashionable Emporium, which sold cut glass and fine chandeliers, stuff like that. And he just wanted people to visit. So it's kind of a tourist trap. So the reason the first 
a passenger elevator was set up simply as a way to trick people into his shop, which I kind of think shows sort of lack of faith in your merchandise. You're thinking we need to think of a way to get people in here. Well, let's just come up with a new way of travel. Um, this lift was, if you're interested, was powered by steam. There's a steam engine in the basement, which would kind of worry me. I think I'm not sure I'd want to get on a steam powered lift, especially no. with only five flights of stairs. You know, I think I'd probably yeah. walk it. But the crucial thing was this then led to further inventions in this field. And there was a Liverpudlian architect called Peter Ellis who had a different idea. He wanted a lift, basically, that could deal with lots of people and in quick succession. And when in 1864 he was asked to design the Oriel Chambers, which was a five-storey building in Liverpool, he came up with this invention called the Paternoster Lift, which was first installed in 1869. And this lift has had a huge impact on the way cities are today in the, in the life we lead. So the thing about the Paternoster Lift was it never stopped. So it never slowed yes. down. It didn't have any doors. Uh, it just had loads of compartments that were constantly going round on like a, loop. a ski lift, like a yes, but forward stepping, so facing. So you basically step into like stepping into a cupboard, but that cupboard is on the move, and it will <laughs> slice your legs off if you get it wrong. I've just I've just realised what a paternoster lift is. Yeah, and that, I've never seen one in real life, but I've, I know about them. They are terrifying things. Exactly. So passengers had to step into these little. Um, cupboards basically uh, and they had to time it right and they had to leap out at their own peril making their own judgments about timing because it, it wouldn't stop it would just go it would go past your floor onto the next floor and you just had to jump out and in at the right time it was really easy to get wrong I mean do you think you'd risk that would you do you no. know what I've only been skiing once and I was hungover in my defence <laughs> so I'd 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 never been so I they started me off in a sort of child slope and I got good enough at that they said you can do a blue run on your own now but you need to go on a ski lift I was like oh great that sounds like good it was on some day I can't remember how long but I I'd had a couple of lessons yeah they said have you been on a ski lift before and I rather arrogantly said oh, I'll work I'll work it out anyway it was it was explained to me how to get on and off a ski lift <laughs> at which point. Let's face it, my attention started to drift. <laughs> um, I, I, I got on the ski lift all right. And it was like a proper ski lift in a sort of in a big resort in the in the Alps somewhere. But when it came to getting off the ski lift, I realised I'd not been listening and didn't know and kind of blagged it, which was absolutely impossible to do. So I sort of got off the ski lift badly. My skis got... Um, my skis got caught. I don't think. I don't think I'd. I'd got off the seat properly. I can't remember. You meant to unclip yourself. Either way, I. I got everything that you could get wrong wrong. <laughs> and I had to, had, to be, had to be rescued by. But obviously, it's still going. Now, if it. If it. <laughs> No. If I don't get off, the drop obviously becomes exponentially bigger. At which point, it looks like I'm sort of facing death. So I got Are you sat rescued. on the seat at this point? What, yeah, what yeah, yeah, to yeah. Do? You have got your bum on the seat. It's okay, like fine. being dragged and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And I reckon I was probably th- three seconds away from serious injury. And I, I know it was bad, and I know I should have listened, and I. <laughs> I know that the bloke was angry with me because he was so furious. He took his gloves off and threw them at me in disgust. (laughs) (laughs) 
in cold weather as well. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and and swore in a in a language I didn't understand. Yeah, and then I thought, right, just just pretend that didn't happen, and then <laughs> it was awful. It was absolutely awful. But yeah, and do you know what? I've I never told Izzy that. And she'd been skiing lots of times, so fingers crossed she doesn't listen to this episode because it was very, very embarrassing. But yes, yeah, so when it comes to the Paternoster lift, no thanks. Well, this might not reassure you. Um, in the Czech Republic, they've earned the nickname of the Elevators of Death. That's what oh they're known God. God. there. Oh um, but Imperial Germany became obsessed with them, basically, because they were obsessed with matching... Britain and America for everything, and they installed them everywhere. And even today, where they've disappeared basically everywhere, there are still hundreds in operation in Germany, even though they continue to injure people. Uh, some stats here. Their, <laughs> overall, their overall rate of accidents is estimated as 30 times higher than conventional elevators. And, oh, my and God. Germany saw an average of one death per year due to paternosters prior to 2002. So since they've invented... Wow. One person a year in Germany has died on one of these things. Do you know what, Tom and Chris, obviously we're all parents. You know the first time you take little kids, really little <laughs> kids, either on an escalator or on the tube or on the metro in Paris yeah, yeah. Um, or any kind of metro, getting them on and off the train Awful. is terrifying. And getting them on, yeah. on and off the escalator, you just think, I cannot mess this up. A pattern yeah. the lift. Can you imagine taking any kids on a pattern <laughs> the lift? Ready? <laughs> Ready, ready, set! Oh my god! <laughs> no, not only would I never do that, I would say to my kids, "You are never getting in a paternoster yeah. yeah. lift." I don't care if you're fifty, sixty; yeah. it's not happening. Yeah. I can't believe Tom, you're giving away giving these stats because I've always suspected there must be a failsafe. There must be. Yeah. I thought that, that those lifts surely have some. They must be so sensitive that they must be made of jelly or something. Well. <laughs> <laughs> the failsafe in Germany and in the Czech Republic actually is because there's lots of tourists have started visiting these uh, elevators of death and trying to get on them. They've now put barriers in front of them, front of them because they're often in official courthouse buildings and uh, you know those sort of things. So you have to basically tap in to get to them. So if you work there, you can go on them, but they've basically stopped tourists going on them. Right. So okay. That's the you're plan. on a stag. <laughs> you're on a stag. It's day two. Every, you're a stag in Germany. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's hungover. You're the organiser, the best man. You see the elevator of death as a potential, <laughs> as a potential tourist attraction. That's like an Inside Number Nine episode, isn't it? <laughs> Would watch. Would absolutely you, watch. Do you go? That sounds like a laugh. Or yeah. do you say no? We're going to go to the pub because because it's absolutely mad. Go on. I would never ever never because you also know no. there's one of the lads on the stag is going to do things. Oh. He lies down and he puts his head out and he tries to put his head back in just before it goes. Oh, yeah. Dave. yeah. So that's going to happen. This is freaking. Ultimately, it's not good enough because you're just on a lift. <laughs> it's, and you've got even to get if off you again. get it, even if it's you get it right, dangerous. it's hardly the thrill of a lifetime. It's just a bad thing, but with added jeopardy. <laughs> but the crucial question is, how did the Paternoster lift change the world? So the, why was this invention so important? And there's two reasons. First of all, 
before the lift, and I thought this was really interesting, the top floor in a house or a building was considered the worst place to live. Lugging yourself up the stairs just to sleep below the roof was considered unhealthy, dangerous, like as bad as a cellar, basically. But the lift changed that. The lift is the reason, the penthouse is now the place that people want ah. to live. It meant um, it, it became this accessible area, and then suddenly you're looking at views, you're looking at the wonder of all that, and it completely yeah. changed the value of you know property, basically. And secondly, and this is far more important, lifts proved that humans could build upwards and made navigating these buildings possible, yeah. which in turn then made cities more and more dense as kind of property owners tried to develop taller and taller buildings to maximise square footage. So without the invention of the Paternoster lift and other lifts like that, cities would not have developed in the ways that they have now. They're the reason we have high rise and, you know, New York and Shanghai and London, all these places look like they do. How is because of the invention of the lift. It allowed us to build up, to cram people into small spaces because really, you know, build a building which is 60 floors high. If there's not a lift in it, it's not usable, is it? And that's, that's the yeah. important impact it had. <laughs> Amazing. How interesting. <laughs> Can I ask a question? So we, we've, we know now people are dying on paternoster lifts. Can I ask how? Is it what? Are they getting their heads caught? They're, what's know. going on there? It, oh, it doesn't Chris. give the specifics. Uh, do, do you know what? Don't tell me. Do you know, Can I surprise you? Most of these sort of uh, government-based statistical readings or things like that don't get into the nitty-gritty of how the people died. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I mean, it's obvious, isn't it? Yeah. It's obvious. Is it? Oh, God. <laughs> Sorry, I'm reading about it now. Oh, no. It's mad that any of them exist. I would have I would have assumed they were, they were all gone because they're crazy. They are crazy. How can you trust anyone? Yeah. Also, you, you'd think, I mean, this... I sound like, a, like an old person who's got a very specific set of political leanings, but you would think that health and safety culture mm. would have n- nipped the paternoster lift in the bud. That is true about the health and safety, though. I know what it's, it was actually that the, the health and safety team, they, they worked on the top floor and people were too nervous to go up. <laughs> <laughs> There's a 150-year-old man with a massive white beard waiting there, thinking to himself, we haven't had a single complaint. <laughs> that was inventions uh, i love that guys it was a lot of fun oh, it was good fun yeah i mean not as much fun as uh, a death-defying escapade on a paternoster lift but um still a fun, a fun episode nevertheless <laughs> so if you have enjoyed today's episode and you are enjoying the show in general um please do leave us a review write it in latin write it in ancient greek write it in english welsh whatever you want to do but uh show your support for the show because it makes a real difference and we also really appreciate all the emails you send us the, it's great there's a community of you out there getting in contact and we we love hearing from you if you want to get in contact and contribute to this wonderful show you can email us on hello at owhatatime.com on the internet we look forward to hearing from you thanks guys as always see you next goodbye week. bye see ya bye